you've entered the Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, this sounds almost like a horror film. You have this family, they move into this great home or homestead, and as soon as they arrive, weird stuff happens. Strange phenomena, strange creatures, ghosts, poltergeists, everything like that. And UFOs, werewolves. Exactly. Lon Chaney Jr., whatever. Okay. All right. So this kind of describes what we've heard about this Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. In Utah, yeah. Very strange stuff. It really does sound almost like a Whitley Strieber story gone insane. Right. And yeah. at least one person, of course, that's George Knapp, claims that it's real. Now, George Knapp is not just a normal UFO Kool-Aid drinker, to use the vernacular. He's an award-winning journalist, as a matter of fact. He's won a number of Emmy Awards, 11 Emmy Awards, I understand. Wow. Yeah. He's a member of the I-Team, which is the investigative reporting team for Channel 8 in Las Vegas. So we're talking about a substantial guy with a lot of substantial experience who just happens to be interested in UFOs. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know about the skinwalker, but I think there's going to be a very interesting story ahead of us here. So uh, is there lots of photographic evidence around this case? Do we have recordings of the things that have been observed? Do we know who the family is? I mean, I have lots of questions. Well, let's hope he answers at least some of them coming up next on the Paracast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. George, uh, there's been a lot of talk, and, and actually there's been some writing about a very odd situation by the name of Skinwalker Ranch. I suspect a lot of our listeners don't really know much about it if they've heard of it at all. Would you please give us a little bit of a background on what this situation is all about? Well, it's unfortunate that your listeners, some of your listeners don't know about it because uh, we've tried to get it out there. Uh, Colum, Dr. Colin Kelleher and I wrote a book about it uh, mm-hmm. called Hunt for the Skinwalker. Sorry about the shameless plug, but we're going to be talking about it anyway, so I'm here to get to it. Shameless uh, plugs are allowed on this show. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, great. In fact, they call us uh, shameless sometimes. It's another story. <laughs> there's, a, there's a section of Utah, the Uinta Basin, up in the northeast corner, rural area, beautiful area, stark, uh, a lot of... Uh, resources up there, oil and shale and things of that sort. It's dinosaur country. And for at least 150 years, probably a lot longer, it's been sort of a hotbed of, of paranormal activity, UFO activity in particular. Uh, as far back as the late 1700s, you had Spanish conquistadors and uh, and explorers there who had seen strange things in the sky over their campsites. Uh, the Native Americans uh, have legends about this stuff that go back 15 generations or more. In more recent times, for at least the past 50 
years, which is the modern UFO era is what we call it. It's been almost nonstop activity. It's hard to find anyone in, in the Uinta Basin that hasn't seen spaceships, disks, uh, weird lights, all kinds of things. And uh, the epicenter of all the activity, at least according to the locals, is this ranch. It's a 480-acre ranch. It's a beautiful property, well-watered, consists of three uh, separate homesteads that are now all part of one property. And, uh, man, it is the, the weirdest place on Earth. Uh, in 1994, a family moved in. The, the property had been uh, vacant for a long time. This family that we're, we call the Gormans, if you want to know their real name, it's not hard to find it. Um, they moved into the property. It was their dream home. They, uh, the rancher uh, raised high-end cattle. I mean, Semmental cattle, uh, you know, this is scrub cattle off the, off the rangeland. And he just thought this was a great place to be. So uh, uh, he, his wife, and two children moved in. They're straight-A students, straight-arrow people. Move into the property. The first day they're on the ranch, uh, they're unloading their stuff. They get to see this giant wolf uh, across the pasture, just standing there looking at them. And they're kind of looking at it. They're wondering, uh, what the heck? We didn't even know there were wolves in this area. This thing starts meandering across the pasture towards them, sheepishly, you know, uh, uh, demonstrating that they thought that it must be tame. It gets close enough to them that they could smell like a wet dog smell that had rained that day. And they thought, wow, look at this. This is a tame wolf. That's so unusual. The thing starts coming in toward the family. Uh, the guy's, the, the rancher's father is there helping him unload the stuff. He pets it, and they're all sort of watching it and, uh, in amazement. Well, uh, they had unloaded a couple of calves earlier in the day, and they were in this corral that's uh, surrounded by these metal bars. The wolf diverts its attention away from family and looks at this calf, these calves, one of which had its nose, its snout outside the bars. The wolf making in a blur of, a, of motion, it jumps at this thing and snaps these powerful jaws over the head of this calf and starts trying to rip it out of the corral and, uh, and take off with it. Well, the, the rancher grabbed, uh, his father actually grabbed this axe handle and just whacks this, uh, this wolf over the back, hits it again with a powerful blow. It doesn't even phase this thing. The rancher tells his son to run to his truck. He's got a, a 357 Magnum, a handgun, powerful gun, brings it back. He tells everybody to stand back. He takes a shot at this, at the wolf, point blank range. It doesn't budge, doesn't, doesn't let out a sound, doesn't bleed, nothing. Takes a second shot at it. That's when it dropped the calf and just sort of stood there. His dad had gone to the house, grabbed a, a hunting rifle, uh, 30-odd six, powerful enough to bring down an elk from a great distance, and the rancher shot it again. Uh, he had the wolf's attention at this point, but still it made no sound. It wasn't in distress at all. They knew this was pretty weird. He takes another shot at it, big chunk of flesh out of its chest, flesh and hair that lands on the on the on the grass and then the wolf sort of casually turns around and starts trotting across this pasture well you know you don't want to leave a, a wounded wolf that's that's as large i mean this thing came up its back came up to the the middle of the of the rancher's chest and he's a big guy it starts taking off across the pasture they grabbed another rifle uh, weapon and started going after it they go into this uh, creek uh, marshy creek area and it was no problem for them to follow the tracks of this wolf i mean the thing was heavy must have weighed two 200, 250 pounds. So the, in the mud, these tracks are a couple inches deep. They're following it through the brush, realizing this is a pretty dangerous situation. They come to a clearing uh, that's about 30 feet from this creek, and the tracks just stop. I mean, 
as if this thing was plucked out of the sky and just completely disappeared. Well, they're pretty freaked out about it. They go walking back toward uh, the family, uh, don't really know what to say about it. They picked up the uh, chunk of flesh that had flown off and realized that it, it smelled like rotten meat, like it had been out in the, in the sun for a couple of days. Well, look, they had just moved from another state. This was their home. They just did their best to put it away, as weird as that sounds, put it out of their head and try to go on with their lives. But that, that was day one of what had happened to them. And from there, things really, really got weird. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to George Knapp, an award-winning investigative journalist. He works for Channel 8, KLAS-TV in Las Vegas. And we're talking about a strange place called Skinwalker Ranch, an area of Utah that I wonder if we might consider this a window area, to use the John Keel phrase for places that seem to attract paranormal activity. So this is day one, George. And yeah, I, I, so we're dealing with day one. Now, what happened from here? It sounds like it went downhill from here. Well, downhill or uphill, depending on your viewpoint, I guess. Uh, there were a lot of things that happened, and I'll relate all of them to you in, their next, uh, in the time that we have. Some very uh, disturbing things, even dangerous things. The, 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 the incidents that, that uh, really put the goosebumps up on my arms are really the small events that started happening to the family, events that we might equate with poltergeist-type activity. For example, uh, the mom goes to town. She does enough grocery shopping for a couple of weeks, comes back, uh, unloads all the groceries, uh, takes it out of the bag, puts it in the cupboard, walks down the hall and goes to the bathroom, comes back, all the groceries are back in the bag. Or the dad is out in the in the field using a, a post hole digger, 75-pound metal and wood uh, tool, and he's uh, he stops for just a second. I mean, the thing is standing right in front of him, takes a swig of water, wipes his brow, looks around, it's gone. They don't find it for a couple of weeks. It ends up uh, 75 feet up in, in a tree. The mom would uh, had a little routine in the morning. She would take a shower. She'd go into the shower, lock the bathroom door, put her towel and her hairbrush on the, on the cabinet there. And a lot of the times that she'd get out, the towel and the hairbrush are gone. The door's still locked. She'd find the towel like in the microwave and the hairbrush and the freezer later on. Little tiny, tiny things like that that are just kind of really weird. It escalated to where they started uh, seeing shapes uh, outside, big, dark, indistinct shapes, uh, faces, uh, things that would make uh, noises. They'd hear creaking inside the house, jump up and open the door, and there's nothing there. Something was really messing with them. Then they started hearing sort of voices. They would hear, they felt that they were 
being watched all the time, and uh, they would hear these voices from 10, 15 feet uh, above their heads as they're walking out in the pasture at night, speaking in some strange gibberish language. Uh, a couple of times they yelled at the voices that stopped, and, and then the, the, these things, whatever they were, responded almost in a mocking sort of a tone, and then they started seeing the lights. Uh, at first, these things were small uh, disc, not, not discs, but balls, balls of light. Uh, I think the first ones were white that would be flitting around among the cattle and, and the animals and scaring the animals. Then they started seeing these red things that really disturbed the animals, scared the hell out of the cows and stampeded the, the cows and the horses a couple of times. And then these blue things started showing up, these blue blue meanies, I call them. They, they looked like they were made out of glass with some kind of a swirling blue liquid inside. And these things seem to generate fear. I mean, way out of normal. I mean, it's a weird and scary event uh, to, to see these things up close, but the farmer, the rancher, and his wife say that the, the terror that they felt was just way out of whack for, for the circumstance, and, and that these things seem to be manipulating them. And then they started seeing craft. I mean, what we would call UFOs. When you talk of blue meanies, by the way, and we'll go on with this, I think of that old Beatles film. Yeah. Well, that's Yellow where Blue Meanies came from. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay, yeah, so so what happens next? Well, we started seeing what we would call classic UFOs. And, and this area, the Uinta Basin, as I mentioned briefly before, had been just a UFO hotbed for a long time. Back in the, I think it was in the 1970s, a, a professor at Utah State University, Frank Salisbury, had written a, a, a book about it that, that got a lot of attention back then. And he based the book on 400 of the best cases that had been collected by a guy named Junior Hicks, who lives in that area. He'd been a school teacher all of his life, so he basically knew everyone. I mean, everyone in the hole you went to base had been his student at one time or another, so they trusted him. And as these UFO incidents would happen and, and close encounters of various kinds would happen, uh, people would tell him about it, and he started collecting these things and making case notes, not making a big deal out of it, not running to newspapers or, or TV. A lot of his files became the basis for this book, and the, uh, the sightings continued. Well, as June Junior Hicks had said the, the ranch, this particular ranch, seemed to be the epicenter of this whole thing, and he was the first one to tell us the term that, the, that this ranch, in the view of the youths, was in the path of the skinwalker. The skinwalker is sort of a, a sorcerer, an evil shapeshifter in Native American lore. The Ute tribe say that they had been basically tortured by a skinwalker-type being for a long time, and it seemed to live at this property. Our title of the book, The Hunt for the Skinwalker, we're not literally trying to prove that there's such a thing as a skinwalker, but we felt that this was sort of a the Utes tribe's blanket explanation, an umbrella explanation for all the weird things that they had seen on this property over the years, including these UFOs. Uh, the Utes believe that their uh, battles with the Navajo over the years had resulted in the Navajo putting a curse on them, and as, you know, as, as quaint and as silly as that might seem, they took it very seriously, and the Navajo and Hopi tribes to this day, you try to ask them about skinwalkers, they won't talk about it. I mean, it's it's very serious stuff in that culture. Well, so George, um, well, yes. I've got to just ask you a question about this, because you're describing a pretty wide range of paranormal activity. Over how long did this happen with this family? And the obvious question I guess I have to ask, is there any kind of photographic or visual evidence physical evidence that supports what these folks were saying was happening? Well, those are several questions. The uh, the family, which we're calling the Gormans, lasted 20 months on the property. Again, this mm -hmm. was their dream property. They didn't want to leave. But by the time they got out of there, they were a wreck. 
uh, because of some of the things that I'm going to tell you. Is there photographic evidence? There is. That was uh, acquired by the National Institute for Discovery Science, NIDS, which comes in a little bit later. And, um, and a lot of that has not been made public for reasons. It's not a big mystery. I'll, I'll explain it a little bit down the line, but I want to do this other stuff first, right. if you don't mind. Uh, sure. The UFO stuff started popping up. The first one that the, that the family had seen was um, they thought it was an RV that somehow there's only one entrance into this property, and they, they saw these, what they thought were headlights, down in the third homestead. The, the rancher and his son were, they figured, oh, man, somebody somehow got into our property, got stuck down there. Uh, let's go help them out and get them the heck out of the, off our land. As they start walking towards these headlights, the headlights start coming toward them, and they can see sort of a refrigerator-shaped vehicle that, that kind of looked like a, a large Winnebago. As this thing starts coming towards them, uh, it's no longer driving. It starts flying. It rises up uh, over the trees and then just took off. Uh, they started seeing things that resembled uh, what we the stealth fighters, except for they had these Christmas lights all around them that would uh, project lights onto the ground, uh, the snow during winter time, and which would make uh, no sound at all. They just hover. They started seeing uh, classic flying saucers. They saw things that would fly right into the, the, the mountains, and uh, as if they were absorbed by the the soil itself. So they knew they weren't in Kansas anymore, and the things were very weird. Uh, eventually, they started asking questions of their neighbors. Hey, what's the deal? And they found out that about the legacy of that property and the legacy of that whole area, something they hadn't known before. Eventually, a lot of uh, uh, things got really nasty. Their animals started disappearing. Um, dogs uh, disappeared, fa family pets. The uh, horses were being attacked. The cattle started disappearing, very expensive cattle. Just, you know, they'd walk out into a snowbank and the tracks would end much like that uh, wolf's tracks ended, and poof, they're gone. And a, a loss like that for a rancher just getting started, it's its pretty serious stuff. Then they started seeing, like, giant scoop marks, like as if somebody took a, a giant cookie cutter, stuck okay. it into the dirt of their pasture, and lifted up chunks of uh, two and 300 pounds of soil at a time. Those holes stayed there a long time. They, had, they saw what we would describe as a classic uh, crop circles, as if something had settled down a, a large circular objects had settled down in, in their uh, in their fields. They they would see lights that would emanate from nowhere in the sky, no craft up there, just beams of light like a spotlight that would illuminate the whole pasture. And sometimes they would see lights that would come, what they described as right out of the ground. They would hear noises like there was an underground railroad or a factory or something under their, under their feet, and the, the ground would shake, and they thought maybe there was a government installation or something down there. And, uh, I mean, it was a whole lit of really weird stuff, but when the animals started dying uh, and they started asking questions uh, about what might be going on of their neighbors, the word sort of got out. Uh, there was a reporter from the Deseret News named Zach Van Eyck who, uh, who caught wind of this, came out and uh, the rancher really didn't want attention but figured, look, maybe this is the government doing this and if we tell this story, we can get them off our backs. He did a, a story about it uh, that was uh, picked up by AP and went all over the country and that's story came to the attention of a Las Vegas businessman, a wealthy and successful man named Bob Bigelow, who has uh, had a long-standing interest in a variety of paranormal topics. He's given a lot of money to support valid scientific research. Bigelow reads the story, comes up, uh, flies up in his jet to meet the family, hears their stories, and uh, says, hey, I'll buy the place. And he did. 
the rancher himself was kind of a stubborn and proud man, didn't really want to leave his ranch. So somehow, after all this stuff had happened, and there were some pretty dramatic incidents that I'm leaving out, uh, they talked the rancher into staying on the property, uh, sort of to act as a uh, as a foreman. And, and uh, they also bought his cattle to leave them out there uh, almost as bait to see if, uh, mm. if whatever this thing was would interact. Uh, a question. See. I have a question for you, George. So sure. these things are going on on the ranch, and it wasn't until the cattle were disappearing that they said anything to any of the neighbors or asked them? Well, that's that's my understanding. I never interviewed the family. They were gone by the time I got there, but the NIDS scientists spent a lot of time with them. They Basically, the NIDS team moved into the property. They were there 24-7 for a long time. They had monitoring gear all over the place. They were out every single night in the fields. They got to know the family really, really well. These are country people. These are rural people. They don't uh, they don't go running to uh, the government. They don't go running to a newspaper. They didn't want any attention. They thought it was so weird that uh, people would think they're crazy. Which, if you guys you guys deal with UFO topics all the time, I'm sure you you've heard that kind of a thing before. Well, the uh, the, the the incidents that really got them going that really bothered the, the, the family. There was a, a one incident in particular involving their three hunting dogs. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to George Knapp, an award-winning investigative reporter for KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas. And he's co-author of a book that came out a few months back called Hunt for the Skinwalker, Science Confronts the Unexplained at a Remote Ranch in Utah. Let's talk about those dogs. Well, he, the, the rancher had these three dogs. I mean, he would had, had a lot of animals. And, and, um, and uh, as I said, uh, the, uh, several of the dogs were just gone. Uh, there was one night where eight cats disappeared. There was, they knew bad things were happening to their animals. Cattle would disappear. A couple of them were carved up in classic mutilation fashion. And then there's these dogs. He, the rancher's on the phone to a friend of mine, and he's saying, look, the, the blue, uh, blue orbs are back tonight. There, there's one floating across the pasture in the same pasture where the wolf had disappeared. Appeared. And this thing is sort of toying with the dogs. These these powerful hunting dogs are are jumping up and trying to bite this thing. 
as it's floating in the air, and it's staying just out of the reach of their jaws, sort of drawing them across the pasture. And the rancher's describing this to a friend of mine on the phone, and uh, then all of a sudden the dogs, by the time they get to the edge of the pasture, into this brushy area, they disappear from his view. He says, hey, i got to go. He hangs up the phone. And when he did that, he hears this, these horrible screams, yelps, from these animals. Uh, he was too scared. I mean, in that particular incident, he was too scared, even with his gun, to go out there and look for his animals. In the morning, though, he went out to the pasture, and there's these three spots, like greasy spots, as if these things, these animals, the dogs, had been vaporized. And that was uh, that was pretty much the incident that made he and his family decide that they were going to go. But there had been many other ones. I mean, intrusions in the house and, and very strange things. I mean, animals would pop up that they'd never seen before. They had these exotic birds. I mean, wild colored birds that are not native to the area, that don't fly over the area, look like they would be at home in the Amazon that would pop up for two or three days and then poof, they're gone and nobody sees them again. Well, they I, saw I, I, one night, they, they were one afternoon they're coming home and they, they open the gate and they see that their horses are jumping up and down in the corral, can't figure out what the, what the problem is, and then they see there's this large, muscular, almost like a hyena maybe a 200-pound muscular hyena, but with a big red bushy tail like a fox that's toying with the horses, slashing with these claws at the legs of the horses. The rancher slams his, his truck, jumps out, of the, out, of, out the door, goes running and yells at this thing, and this animal jumped out of the corral, ran up the Skinwalker Ridge, and poof, it was gone. Rancher goes back and looks at the horses, and it's, it's not his imagination. Their legs are all chopped up. Um, so there were a lot of things that just scared the heck out of this family. They weren't sleeping. The, the mom lost her job at a, at a bank. The kids uh, went from straight-A students to barely going to school. By the time the NIDS team arrived to uh, basically bail them out, all four members of the family were sleeping together. Uh, what sleep they got, they'd sleep together on the floor of one room, so they're all there together. It was, uh, it was bizarre. It was strange. Uh, they didn't know what to make of it. Neither did anyone else. So what happened to this? You, you mentioned before, George, that there was uh, that they had taken some pictures of something. And then you mentioned that these guys from National Institute of Discovery Study of uh, Science came in, and they have the photos? They have photos. They have videos. But uh, to tell you the truth, it's really, uh, you know, not much of it is compelling. For example, they, they set up uh, surveillance uh, stations in each of the pastures where they would go out each night and watch the fields. They all had all kinds of monitoring equipment, Geiger counters and compasses and and uh, all sorts of things. They, they put video camera units up atop uh, telephone poles and positioned them where they could basically see the whole ranch. And a lot of those videotapes that I've seen have captured images, but in the dead of night, in the middle of nowhere, you got a light, a ball of light that's 100 or 150 yards away on videotape. It doesn't really bowl yeah. you over. I mean, it's just not that much. There were photos of a lot of other kinds of things. For example, the uh, scoop marks that were taken out of the ground. There were photos of the uh, flattened grass where the these crop circle type things. There was an incident much later that happened where something essentially uh, carved a quarter inch deep uh, crop circle type formation, perfect circle, in a in a pond, a little 
three or four inch deep pond that had frozen overnight. There's no tracks, no, there's just no possible way that anybody could figure out how to do it. It was just almost like a calling card messing with people. Um, the NIDS team came in, set up all this stuff. They did get some images, but the, the, and I know it's hard to believe, and it, it's, it's uh, what a lot of folks have had trouble accepting, but it is what it is, and, and we have to report it as it happened, is that this thing was cagey. It was a trickster-like. It, was, uh, it, it did not like being stalked. When the NIDS team arrived, it sort of changed the whole equation. You know, it, it, whatever this entity or force was, it, it seemed to get a lot of pleasure or uh, kicks out of torturing this family. It seemed to feed off of the emotion and the fear. NIDS sort of changed, uh, changed the equation. Uh, there were attempts made to sort of engage this thing. They would set out, uh, set out uh, sort of apparatus that would uh, they hoped that this thing would react to. You set up a camera in one field uh, where events had happened uh, night after night and uh, the, the activity would switch to another field. Um, they'd go out and equipment would fail. I mean, it's a classic kind of UFO stuff. They could see things through infrared binoculars that they couldn't see with their eyes. They could uh, take photos of things that were right in front of them that wouldn't show up. It was a, a lot of very weird things. They did have some photographic evidence, as I said, but it's not enough to convince anyone in the scientific community of anything, which is really is the tough part for for well, NIDS sure. and is you know sort of the uh, the big question mark. And I know you know in writing the book, the criticism that we've had is that we don't tie it up into a neat package. Well, you know we can't make it up. There is no happy ending. There is no easy explanation. We don't know what the hell was going on there, and still don't. And and uh, and. Uh, if somebody's got a, a, a good explanation for it, I'm all ears. Well, George, I'll tell you, on the show, we've talked in, in past episodes about the idea of explanations for UFOs, at one of the po possible explanations being some sort of an entity that derives either pleasure or some kind of power from negative human emotions like fear. That sounds like what's going on here, but if that's the case and the NIDS guys come in, I mean, if I were NIDS, what I would do is set up a situation where I'd have a controlled fear generation experiment. Because if you, if you look at this and if you study it and you start to come to this conclusion, that, okay, it looks like something is feeding off of fear, something is essentially bathing in the negativity, well, then give it what it wants if what you want to do is bait it in. That doesn't sound to me like what they did. Well, that, that I, I'm not describing everything that they did, but they did do some of that stuff. They tried to engage it in a variety of different ways. They, they tried maybe a technological approach that I think they regret. Uh, putting all the cameras on, and monitoring gear because whatever this thing was had a very negative reaction to that. I mean, it would basically hibernate or go away. They tried interpersonal stuff. They, uh, and, you know, there were there were some really dramatic incidents. Um, one involving a scientist that I'll tell you about in a second. But prior to the arrival of NIDS, there was a guy who shows up at the ranch who said that he had been drawn there from hundreds of miles away. He's a great big guy, like a Grizzly Adams kind of guy. He shows up at the the gate and tells the rancher. Listen, I've come a long way. I've been drawn here. I need to meditate on your property. Uh, something is telling me to do this. And the rancher's kind of amused about this. No, you're not going to come meditate on my property. And the guy is persistent, so the rancher kind of chuckling. He says, okay, here, jump in the truck. We'll take you out. They drive uh, to... Um, 
what is the middle homestead, which always sort of seemed to be uh, the, the darkest uh, place in the whole property. And uh, the guy says, here, I want to get out here. He jumps out of the truck and he runs out into this field and the rancher and his son are standing around kind of watching him, laughing at themselves. And he starts meditating his face to the sky. And the rancher and his son start, they start hearing this faint cowbell type sound, this bell out in the bushes somewhere. And they realize, look, none of our cattle have cowbells on them, so I don't know what this sound is. It gets kind of louder, and they see some figure moving in the in the bushes. It's it's kind of opaque, uh, hard to make out, almost camouflaged. And it's moving through the bushes, and then it goes into the trees, and then it rushes up to this guy who's still oblivious to what's going on, rushes right up to him, large, like eight, nine feet tall. They still can't make out its shape, and it roars, a, a roar that you can hear like for miles. This guy jumps back about four or five feet, falls down. The rancher, then this thing takes off and goes back into the bushes. The rancher and his uh, son come over. The, the guy grabs the rancher, won't let go of him. He's terrified. Uh, they get him in the truck and take him off the property, and he screams the place is cursed. Well, a year or so later, uh, the rancher and his son are watching a movie, and they see it's Predator, the movie Predator, and, and they realize that that is basically what they had seen, this this camouflage-type type, type uh, creature. Whatever this thing was, it, it not only didn't like the technological stuff, it seemingly did not like uh, did not like attempts at interaction. The uh, one of the scientists is a PhD physicist who was there uh, uh, much of the time for months at a time, and um, they're out there uh, one night in the pasture with uh, Dr. Colin Kelleher. They have two dogs that they use as like biosensors, and the dogs start freaking out. They see this uh, giant like black cloud floating around in, inside one of the top of the trees, and uh, this thing basically took over the physicist's mind. He started speaking in another language, and it, 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 he said something to the effect of, hey, you're not welcome here. We're watching you. Go away. It's great to have ideas about how to approach it, and they tried a lot of stuff. Did they do everything they could? No. Could they have done things differently? Absolutely. But there was no roadmap for this kind of thing, and they're kind of winging it. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to George Knapp. He's a investigative reporter for KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas. And he's also co-author of Hunt for the Skinwalker, Science Confronts the Unexplained at a Remote Ranch in Utah. George, being someone who's attached to the traditional media, dealing with stuff like this, do your colleagues at Channel 8 look at you and say, oh, that's just George, or how do they react to this stuff? Do your bosses have anything to say about it? Well, I, I've been at it for a long time. I, years In the late 80s, I, I uh, broke the stories about Area 51. Uh -huh. Everyone knows about Area 51 now, but nobody knew about it then, about flying saucers and the stories that floated around. And, and I approached it just like any other news story. I thought it was really interesting, and there was a lot of uh, backup information for it, so it did the stories. And, yeah, I caught all kinds of grief for it and, uh, and still do, and uh, mm. that's okay. 
into the territory. Our bosses have been pretty tolerant about it. Uh, for one reason, the, the public is so interested. You know, the, the the ratings that we had for those initial Area 51 stories, not that ratings are everything, but the, the public couldn't get enough of it. So I, I don't do a lot of UFO stuff anymore, but if something good comes along, it, it's okay. And then they were okay with me working on this. It was really separate from the station. I, I've always been friends with Bigelow since the, the late 80s. He formed NIDS, the National Institute for Discovery Science. When he did that, I, I wasn't uh, part of it, but I was privy to it, you know, everything that was going on. The, the, the NIDS Scientific Advisory Board uh, was made up of some really brilliant people, uh, a couple of um, even political people uh, that whose names you would know, a lot of former intelligence folks, uh, psyops folks, which of course, you know, in the UFO world, that puts up red flags, maybe it's some kind of government operation, but these were people who had been in sensitive positions within the military and intelligence circles who had heard stuff about UFOs and paranormal activity, who always had an interest in it, but could never get any solid answers. So, you know, they were a good group to put together. They had open minds, but asked rigorous questions, and, and they did about the, this, the events on the ranch as well. George, does NID still own this property, and what happened to the information that they gathered? NIDS does own the property, uh, although, well, actually, Bigelow owns the property. Uh, NIDS uh, basically went away. After a time, after a period, the activity at the ranch just evaporated. It went into hibernation. Uh, The most dramatic incident toward the end was uh, something went up the telephone pole and ripped out all the uh, video gear on this one pole as if a, a parting gesture to say, I don't like having my picture taken. Well, the other the scientists realized that the other cameras on the other poles had a, a viewpoint where they could see whatever did it. So they back-timed it to when the power went out on the one camera and uh, looked at the videotape, and there's nothing there. They later sent it to Las Vegas enhancement and found out that there was a, a little tiny ball that was floating around, the, the, a little light that was floating around the camera at the time. Anyway, under enhancement, they could see a little tiny light that was floating around the uh, camera at the time that it was ripped up. And this is not just uh, casually rip out one wire. I mean, it was totaled. It was uh, it was ripped. All the all the thick tape that went all the way down this telephone pole had disappeared. All kinds of plastic uh, tubing that had protected the wires were gone. Uh, it was a fairly dramatic statement on the part of whatever this thing was. The NIDS guys did the best they could. It, it was a strange time. They had a lot of really hair-raising experiences themselves. They saw a lot of this stuff with their their own eyes. They filed reports about it uh, that went into sort of an archive. I've, I've been able to obtain a lot of that stuff. I've seen the videos. I've seen photos. Uh, nothing all that dramatic. I've interviewed uh, many of the principal investigators, many of the neighbors, many of the people who have worked on the property then and since, and uh, it's a heck of a story. It, it's very frustrating because there are no, as I mentioned, there are no easy answers for it. You know, there's a saying the Irish have about places where the world is thin, and it seems like that's what this is. You know, the the rancher would say, at times he would see these giant orange orbs in the sky, and he'd look through them, and, and it seemed like things, objects, aerial objects would fly in and out. And at times, he says, he would look through these things and see another sky. It's dusk in Utah, and it's daylight on the other side of this thing, wherever it went. Well, you know, some people talk about window areas. I mentioned John Keel. For those who don't recognize the name John Keel, John is the author of a number of popular UFO books, including Our Haunted Planet, and of course, The Mothman Prophecies that may or may not have something to do with UFOs. Of course, John Keel's book 
book was used to create that movie called The Mothman Prophecies. The book was presented as fact, the movie is fiction, and the character played by Richard Gere was patterned supposedly after John Keel, although, of course, the character played by Richard Gere had nothing whatsoever to do with the John Keel that I knew. Anyway, basically, it's like an entryway or a doorway into another place, another place, another time, whatever. Yeah, that seems to be what this was. I mean, we that's our best guess for it. There was an incident where there were two uh, teams of two investigators. One uh, team of two was up on Skinwalker Ridge with the high ground, and the other, Colin Kelleher being one of them, were on the on the low ground walking out in the pasture, and they see this they see this uh, light, this dull yellow light that uh, a ball that's uh, hovering i don't know eight or nine ten inches above the ground and it starts growing and becomes elongated until it looks like a tunnel and they they, they had these walkie-talkies are talking to the guys up top and hey you seeing this yeah what the heck is that and then when it becomes a tunnel they see something crawling through it uh, something large and dark wriggling to get through this tunnel you know struggling to get to squeeze through it and the damned if the thing didn't crawl all the way out, stood up. It was like nine feet tall, like a Sasquatch kind of a, a being. You couldn't make out the figures, uh, the features. As soon as it stood up, the light, the tunnel, collapsed back into a ball and it disappeared altogether. And this thing started running up the hill to where these other guys were. Well, they were petrified. It was coming after them. So... That certainly sounds like a dimensional sort of thing when you add that to the rancher talking about seeing another sky. And then you think about these strange animals that seem to pop in and out from some other world. It did seem like it was a gateway to somewhere or a crossroads or uh, I, I don't know what. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to George Knapp. He is an investigative reporter for KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas. And he's also co-author of a book called Hunt for the Skinwalker. Science confronts the unexplained at a remote ranch in Utah. We have time for one more segment. David? Well, we've got science as part of the uh, the title of the book, George, and I don't want to keep beating this point, but I want to understand this NIDS organization, which, from what I know about it, was not founded to look specifically into this case. They had been studying other stuff as well. So you say they sort of faded away. What happened? And again, what happened to the data collected at this ranch? 
Well, a lot of the data is, is still in Mr. Bigelow's possession. I mean, I got a lot of it. Column had a lot of it. Uh, there were reports that they would, had, were writing uh, that uh, went to me, among other people, on the condition that I didn't do anything with them. And NIDS realized that this is so weird. What are you going to do? You have credible scientists working on this stuff. You're gathering all this data. None of it is reproducible. None of it is, uh, is uh, you, you can't test it in any way. It's not going to stand up in a, in a court of scientific opinion. They were worried that you, you put all this stuff out and uh, you'd be laughed at, and, and, uh, which is why they, they sat on the information. I was the only uh, person after the NIDS got there, the only outsider that was allowed onto the property and, and uh, allowed access to the material. I, I think uh, a lot of the reports are probably still in Mr. Bigelow's possession. Uh, we've had access to pretty much everything we've asked for. When we started writing the book, we, we basically didn't have permission. You know, we, uh, I, I went there uh, in 2002 was the first time. It was with the, um, took me a long time to talk them into it under the uh, idea that I would produce a documentary. And they allowed me to bring a cameraman, and uh, I made several visits and interviewed a lot of the folks who were there. And, and they knew eventually I would uh, put something together. It took me a long time to talk them into that. It took me a long time to uh, talk them into allowing me to write a couple of newspaper articles that I, I wrote about it for a, a, a Las Vegas weekly newspaper. Uh, they went all over the world because a lot of folks who had been following this story from afar had never heard this stuff. And um, when the activity at the ranch subsided to the point where it really wasn't worth their time anymore, NID sort of faded away. Bob Bigelow today is, has put $500 million of his own money into creating a space habitat program that takes up all of his time, all sources. Uh, he still is interested in the ranch, hangs onto the property, has people who work for him living there, uh, but it's not his top priority anymore. If the activity were to resume to the point where it's, it would be worthwhile for NIDS to reform, it could be done in, in, a, in a heartbeat. And, and, that, and Bob has said to me many times that that's what he'd like to do, perhaps to try, if there, if there was another chance, to try a different way. Take out the cameras, not have any of the electronic gear, and try to engage this thing on an interpersonal level. There were some attempts to do that before uh, that, that didn't work. Uh, maybe uh, shaman or uh, holy men or Native Americans, if you get them to go on the property, which the Utes don't do, uh, and try uh, a, a much different way to engage this thing, whatever it was. Whatever it is, it's been there a long time. It seems to, you know, Colum and I, our best guess would, it seemed to be almost a learning curve, you know. It, it demonstrated that a lot of the paranormal activity that, that uh, different groups study, Sasquatch, crop circles, cattle mutilations, UFOs, poltergeists, that maybe there's an, a relationship at some level, that, that they exist somewhere else and that uh, this thing was giving us a brief glimpse of some kind of other reality and letting us think about it. You know, I don't know. I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a deep thinker. Just That's the best we could come up with. NIDS had existed. They had the, sort of a a strike force that would uh, go after mutilation cases because those are cases that could be analyzed. There's physical evidence left. So when a, a, there'd be a mutilation outbreak somewhere, they'd jump on a plane, they'd go up, they'd take tissue samples and analyze this stuff. And uh, that was one of the, the best pieces of evidence that they got uh, in this at the ranch is that there had been a, an incident involving the rancher and his wife. It was a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, bright day, no clouds.
clouds clear, they went out to onto the pasture to tag the ears of newborn calves. They'd had several newborn calves the last couple of evenings. So they tagged this one that was about 50 yards away from the house that's standing right there with its mom. And then they go across the pasture another 50, 75 yards, and they're taking care of their business. And one of their dogs that's with them turns around, looks back in the direction of the first one they'd tagged, and it starts It's showing signs of distress. It's yelping, and they turn around and look. They see the mother cow walking around in a circle, running around in a circle, its eyes bulging out, and it's dragging its leg behind it as if, as if it's injured. So they go running over there to see what's wrong with the, the, the mom, and they see the calf. They had tagged this thing 40 minutes before. It had been completely stripped of flesh in broad daylight, 75 pounds of meat completely gone with surgical precision, no blood on the animal, no blood on the ground, no tracks on the ground. Uh, they called NIDS. They, NIDS team was not there at the time, but they were there within three and a half hours. They took tissue samples. They sent it to two different uh, independent labs, and under microscopes, they realized that two different cutting instruments had been used on this thing, one a giant like machete-type instrument, and another with uh, like a scalpel to carve all the meat off. Well, it didn't happen there. Whatever happened, this this thing was taken somewhere else because otherwise the rancher and his wife would have seen it. Now, those kinds of things, uh, you know, at least there is something tangible for NIDS to analyze and look at and theorize about, but those incidents were few and far between. So they, there is data that still hasn't seen the light of day. I, I'm working on a, a, the documentary that I started back in 2002 and, and have been given access to a lot of stuff and, and uh, people to talk to. And hope to answer some of these questions, but really, it may be answers that we don't understand for a hundred years or more. But the thing is, George, I mean, when you have a, an organization called the National Institute for Discovery Science, science is about the sharing of data. Yes, you've got a situation where it is hard to qualify and quantify this information in terms of standard road scientific procedure, but if you sit on top of this stuff, it seems to me like it's a lost opportunity. If you indeed have a friend with a uh, friendship with Mr. Bigelow, I would suggest that you, you. I mean, maybe you've talked a bit to him about this. I'm just not, you know, aware of that. But you know, to sit on this kind of information, it's it's wasteful. It, it, this is the kind who of stuff. Who would you give it to? Let me ask you, David. Who would you give it to? Well, that's an interesting question. Certainly, uh, probably the first guy I'd get on the phone would be Stanton Friedman. I'd, I'd call him up and say, so, Stan, who should be looking at this? Um, I'd have to really think about that, George, and I will think about that. But, again, there's some amount of information that's been captured, and I think that it's really important to have other people interested in this topic or in any way capable take a look at it you know the, the internet is a great thing because of the fact that it it allows information and data to be transformed at some point hopefully into knowledge and wisdom you know in the well, best you're, case you're scenario the choir because uh, that was the <laughs> argument that i made to mr bigelow to allow me to work on the documentary the first place to allow me to write the newspaper articles and then finally right. to write the book is that we need to get this out there number one right. to find out if there are other places around the country uh, that have had anything comparable comparable to this and we found out that there were there, there really? are others not quite as dramatic but there are others and two uh, hopefully to catch uh, the interest of some somebody who has a, an inquisitive mind and scientific abilities who wants to take a whack at it so far that hasn't happened a column and I wrote the book for a general lay audience uh, right. a lot of the scientific uh, data and readings and things that I don't even understand uh, are not included because we wanted to make it, we hoped that it would be popular, that it would catch on, that it would get a dialogue going. 
especially among some scientists, younger scientists who aren't as aren't as dogmatic about uh, what is real and and what's an acceptable thing to study. There is no organization other than NIDS with uh, quality people who are willing to study this stuff. If you can think of one, let me know. Yeah, so you're so saying NIDS basically that no other organization since this book has come out has come to you and said, hey, we'd like to look at it. No. Okay. Not. You know what it's like, the, the UFO topic alone. I mean, how it's scorned oh, sure. in science. It's almost a religion on their part. They don't, they don't want to look at the data. They don't want to analyze it. They've already figured out that it can't be, and therefore it isn't. And, and they don't study it, and they, uh, it's derision and laughter and things of that sort. It's forbidden to some extent because it's a career suicide for these guys to admit an interest in it, at least for a lot of them. No, I was going to say, George, it's, it's career suicide for a lot of people. I, I'm, I know certainly for myself, being involved with this show has created some problems in my career and in uh, amongst my professional peers there have been issues about me being interested in this topic and uh, when G and I started the show one of the things that uh, that we decided was that this was going to be a show where we're going to try to really understand some of this uh, some of this unusual stuff going on and and belief doesn't come into play with believing in stuff you can believe in anything but the real trick here is to try to understand and arrive at some actual hard facts in as much as anybody can about this topic because it is real problematic. I mean, listening to the Skinwalker story, it's fascinating, but a lot of it, to be honest with you, it's anecdotal. It, like, I want to see some pictures. I want to see some of this data. I'll, I'll tell you well, right I, now here I, on I, the I, air, I'd like to see some of this stuff. I, I agree with you completely. And, and again, this is the argument that I have made to them over the last five or six years. Uh, again, it boils down to data. What What is evidence? and what is enough to convince somebody that something is true. There isn't enough right. evidence to convince anyone. These things happened. We reported it accurately. It is what it is. The other force, the entity, whatever it was, it was calling the shot. It decided what was revealed and what wasn't. And what was revealed isn't enough to convince anyone of anything. It's a whole bunch of anecdotal, weird stuff. Nothing ever happened the same. There was never an incident that happened the same way twice. I mean, that's you know just flies in the face of everything you understand about modern science, non-reproducible stuff. What does it mean? It doesn't mean anything. And there was concern among NIDs, and I think uh, a justifiable concern that they would be ridiculed, and, and we have been. Now, they have been, we have been, since it came out, because because there are no answers. There is nothing solid that proves anything. You've got, uh, you know, got scoop marks in the ground. You've got photographs of an ice circle. You've got uh, analysis of uh, uh, butchered calves. It's and almost, George, to, to kind of sum it up, as if something or someone doesn't want you to know anymore. We have to end it here. We've been talking to George Knapp. He is an investigative reporter and award-winning journalist for KLAS-TV Channel 8 in Las Vegas, co-author of Hunt for the Skinwalker, Science Confronts the Unexplained at a Remote Ranch in Utah. And as I said, lots of questions, and we're going to try to find more of the answers here on the Paracast. George, thanks for joining us. Thanks, hey, it was a pleasure, Gene and David. Thank you.
All right, so that was an interesting story, but I don't know that I'm convinced that it's really genuine, Gene. You have these things going on over, what, two and a half years. I find it hard to believe that we don't have photographs. I mean, at the least, and we know that there are issues with photographic evidence. We, we've, we've already run into that on this show, but it just seems with the range of things that George was talking about that there has to be some kind of hard evidence. And also, the folks from NIDS have all of this data they collected, and they're a scientific organization that won't share this with other researchers, that, that's suspicious to me. I do wonder about that. I think George Knapp, though, is sincere. I think he's a sincere mm -hmm. person who's trying yeah. to understand something. But what hurts is having this organization with all these resources sit on information, not release it to the general scientific community. Well, they got to lose. If it turns out just being a story, okay. Fine. Let's just put that in that little box saying another story, and right. maybe it'll still make a good movie. Okay? It'll make a good oh, movie. It'll make a great movie, actually. Sure. In fact, I wonder if the NIDS folks don't own the rights to that. Right. Ultimately. Or, is, or does George own the rights to that? I mean, he says he's doing this documentary, but I think this sounds to me like a great movie. I think you're right. I think this would be a great movie as a horror science fiction movie, not a documentary. A great movie. So I don't see the reason for holding back the information. Let's find out. Let it all hang out. Let's find out what's really going on at Skinwalker Ranch. Speaking of things that are going on, of course, I'm always intrigued by reports of strange creatures. Okay. Okay. Well, there's so many things in our world that we don't understand. All right. Now, of course, science has a habit that if they don't understand it, it doesn't exist. And well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Dick Cheney exists. He's a strange creature, and we don't understand him. Well, there are always exceptions to the rule. Right. And perhaps he's one of them, but that could be almost another discussion or another radio show. Right. Or we could talk about the strange case of Dick Cheney as a paranormal phenomenon. Oh, boy. I don't know what to say to that. What do you think Lauren Coleman will say about that? I think Lauren Coleman's going to concentrate on the facts. He doesn't strike me as a person who just wants to come up with idle speculation. He's a real careful guy, and he has a lot of solid credentials, okay? Well, as a sociologist, as a zoologist, as a cryptozoologist. He's a very smart guy. We love having him on the show. And, and I want to ask him about this one reported type of creature, these skyfish things. I don't really believe in these things, but I, I'm wondering what Lauren thinks about skyfish. What's a skyfish? Supposedly there are these very odd ethereal creatures, insects that flit around the sky and they look very odd. They have these bizarre wings and no one's ever really captured one, but they maybe have caught them on video and I, I think it's a bunch of hooey. But You're not talking about Congress, things. are you here? No, I'm not talking about <laughs> Okay. Rods. They're called rods. If anybody wants to look these things up on Wikipedia, look up rods. And, uh, I mean, there's some strange anecdotal stories around these things. I don't really believe in them, but uh, I'm just dying to know what Lauren thinks about it. Well, let's find out. Coming up next on the Paracast, cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Lauren Coleman, the world-famous cryptozoologist, is coming up next 
on the Paracast. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story, and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books, or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand science fiction tradition. So, Lauren Coleman, the first time I ever heard of about strange creatures was when I was reading Gray Barker's reports about the Flatwoods Monster. So maybe we should start at that one. And that is, what's the story of the Flatwoods Monster? Was it a monster, a UFO, or something else? Well, I think the Flatwoods Monster is one of these things that's just barely on the edge of cryptozoology. But why it's so interesting to a lot of cryptozoologists is because Ivan T. Sanderson was involved right at the beginning. What you have here is a report in September of 1952 of these people hearing something over a hill uh, in Flatwoods, West Virginia, which is near Sutton, West Virginia. They climb the hill, and all of a sudden they see this creature that seems to be about 10 to 12 feet tall, and it has a head that looks like a ace of spades. Some glowing eyes are seen from it. There's some misty stuff coming from it, as well as what seems to be some toxins. Uh, the dog that is with them gets extremely frightened, runs down the hill, vomits, and then dies a couple days later. Oof. Some of the kids are very upset, and they just run away right away. Uh, there seems to be reports of maybe a UFO in the area, maybe a glowing object. Those kinds of things got a lot of ufologists involved, and they wanted to investigate it. Ivan Sanderson was interested because he was interested interested in any kind of strange phenomenon, but he thought maybe there's some cryptozoological content here. Maybe this is a, a report of some kind of big monster that may be related to natural history. It's a you know a good place to start as any other place, but it's it's one that really is at the edge of cryptozoology. All right, that's the point I think we want to bring up. Quite often, cryptozoology and UFO research seem to work hand in hand. In areas where you see a lot of UFOs, you sometimes see strange creatures. Is there a resemblance, a connection, or does one thing attract the other? What? Well, I, I think that's an interesting way to put it, but I don't really see it. That that way. I see that there's a lot of open-mindedness to some researchers, whether they're ufologists, whether they're Fortians, whether they're cryptozoologists. And oftentimes they go into an area and they're very open to listening to all the stories that are told. I don't see a direct relationship between UFOs and, and Sasquatch. I don't see a relationship between you know, flying saucers and uh, sea serpents. I think that the, what occurs is you often get researcher bias in which the researchers are the ones that are actually the collectors 
layers of the data. And so you may have a whole area of a state, for instance, that has no researcher that's ever looked there, and yet you could find all kinds of stories there. So I really look at, uh, at it more from the psychology of the researchers than I actually do. I know that, you know, people like John Keel have talked about windows, and there seems to be, you know, things like the Bermuda Triangle or the Bridgewater Triangle, and that's a way to focus and concentrate on the location. But I really see them as much different phenomena that can be really looked at uh, by different people in different scientific disciplines uh, and come out with different results. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, and he has a website, laurencoleman.com, and I recommend you go there because you could learn a lot about the subject, an awful lot about the subject. So let's have this line of demarcation here. Do you believe in UFOs? Well, first of all, I always re- react very severely when I'm asked the question, do I believe? I think that belief is really about fate, and I think that it's more of a phenomena and providence of religion. So I accept or deny evidence based upon how I look at it, how I research it, how I investigate and analyze it. Uh, I think that if you're talking, I'm not really interested in UFOs. I'm, I'm not really interested in stories of aliens and ghosts, and I really reject being, uh, you know, sort of roped and hogtied <laughs> into being pulled over into that area. So uh, I can't really answer your question. I'm very open as a Fordian to accepting that many people have extremely unique experiences that are very real to them and may be very real in the the factual physical world. But I'm not here to say I know what those are about. Well, actually, Lauren, I have to tell you, I'm I'm grinning ear to hear here because I so agree with what you just said in that beliefs don't require any kind of tangible logic. Beliefs are things that you can have or not have that are completely devoid of any kind of rational analysis. And so when people ask me if I believe in certain things, I say, look, in in terms of, for example, the UFO realm, I'm interested in understanding and knowing what's going on. Belief doesn't get me anywhere. So, you know, what you just said that I thought that is the exact right response to that question and and gene sometimes asks me if i believe certain things and i say to gene i don't want to believe anything i want to know i want to understand so i think you've really hit it on the head there if someone believes in something you can throw all the evidence all the logic all the rational analysis in front of them and they'll simply reject it out of hand they'll say well that doesn't fit in with my belief system and what you said is exactly right lauren belief is really appropriate in the realm of religious thought, but in terms of scientific thought, it really has no place. Well, this is one of the problems in the UFO field, which is that UFOs is a matter of belief on the part of many people. And it makes it difficult for David and I sometimes to get our particular viewpoints across because we're hitting on those belief systems. And when you strike somebody in the heart of their belief system, all things can go wrong. Well, one of the one of the reasons that my mentor is so important to me, and my mentor was Ivan T. Sanderson, right. is that he, he often said that he 
really searched for the tangible intangible. In other words, there had to be physical evidence. There had to be some kind of measurable component to the mystery that he was interested in for him to really keep pursuing that. And that's what I definitely believe about I mean, I didn't mean to use the word believe, but that's what I definitely follow in terms of, uh, well, we can easily flip into the use of language that way. But anyway, why I like to follow my pursuit of cryptozoological uh, mysteries along the lines is, is there, are, are there footprints? Are there photographs? Are there, uh, you know, hair samples? To try to look for the physical evidence first and not get so concerned and wrapped up in, you know, do the Native Americans in this tribal group feel that they're a spirit? Uh, do the Native Americans in the group next to them feel that this is a physical animal? And really, look, is there any common denominator here of they've really found footprints, for instance? I think another thing I wanted to bring up here is the whole realm of the investigations you're involved in. As a Fortian, and a lot of people are new to the show and haven't heard much discussion of Charles Fort, but maybe you could define that term for the benefit of our listeners who weren't aware of these books, which came out probably, what, 80, 90 years ago now? Right. Uh, Charles Fort was an American intellectual who wrote in the 1920s and 1930s. He really studied in two places, one in New York Public Library, and then he also went to the British Museum. And he got a little bit of inheritance from an uncle that died. So it gave him some time to do research and write. He was interested in with those things what he called the damned. By the damned, he meant whatever science science with a big S excluded. And so he very much pursued were there astronomers that were not seeing everything that was in the sky, were the reports of uh, large creatures being reported in the ocean that everybody neglected. In other words, he looked at what today we would call unexplained phenomena, but many of us who see ourselves as Fortians see this as, you know, Fortian phenomena because it really follows. He had a sense of humor. He wrote four books. Uh, and had a whole collection of intellectual people like uh, Ben Heck and Tiffany Thayer and Oliver Wendell Holmes and Bucky Fuller, who really were his followers. And I was an uh, early 40 and really before I was uh, even knew Ivan Sanderson. And, and as it happened, I uh, even did a conscientious objector status based upon my 40 and thought. And I have two letters in my draft file, one from Bucky Fuller and the other from Ivan T. Sanderson. Wow. Talking about uh, how my Fortean beliefs really rejected the whole notion that I wanted to fight for a government in Vietnam. So does that mean that Buckminster Fuller was a Fortean thinker? As much as I love and follow so much of Buckminster Fuller, Lauren, I've never heard that. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Before yeah. Lauren gives the answer, <laughs> I have to tell our listeners, you're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you want to contact us, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Visit our website at thepowercast.com, thepowercast.com, and check out our wild and woolly message boards. We're talking to Lauren Coleman, Fordian, cryptozoologist, man about town. No, maybe not the latter. Go to laurencoleman.com to find out more. Lauren, you've been holding that answer for about a minute now. Go ahead. (laughs) After Charles Fort's books came out, a group of people got together in New York City and and also in Chicago and wanted to create what was called the Fortean Society. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Ben Hack, different people like that. One of the early members was uh, Bucky Fuller. So he was a card-carrying member of the Fortean Society. He often would talk about being a Fortean, and in his letter to my draft board, he talked about how in terms of a Fortean philosophy that becomes almost political that you can... Many people during the Second World War actually uh, were conscientious objectors based upon the fact they were Fortians. Now, that's fascinating. Have you found in your career, Lauren, that self-identifying as a Fortean has ever worked against you in terms of any kind of credibility issue? Well, I think that self-identifying as anyone being interested in the Avondable Snowman, cryptozoology, and Charles Fort, (laughs) uh, certainly. I I taught in universities for over 20 years, from 1980 through uh, 2004. Uh, all over New England, about seven different universities. And it was very hard to go to staff meetings and come out of the staff meeting and someone who had, you know, coincidentally seen me on a documentary on TV or read about me in the Boston Globe would say things like, oh, he's the guy that believes in the little green men. And the whole ridicule factor was always there for me in terms of, because I've I published again, 27 books, half of them in the social science area uh, on suicide prevention, adoption studies, and and the other on uh, cryptozoology. And so to be taken seriously was sometimes extremely hard, but now after 46, 47 years of being a cryptozoologist, it's just sort of, you know, part of the game that people will try to ridicule you and make fun of you, and it doesn't even bother me anymore. So, Lauren, that being the case, when people do question you about your work in sociology and psychology and how this meshes with the extensive amount of research you've done in cryptozoology, how do you respond to them? How, how do you explain to them that you can have these two passions in one lifetime? Well, for me, it overlaps a lot more than most people see it, and I oftentimes talk about how I'm interested in mysteries in general, that most of these are human-based. I go with the resistance, so to speak, and they say, well, you know, you don't believe in little green men, and it's very easy for me to say, and I start and give them the whole talk I, I give about belief. And that mm-hmm. I say things like, have you read any of this? Have you looked at the evidence? This is not about belief to me. This is not about fate. This is about looking at the evidence evidence in the same way that I would look at the patterns in school shootings or I would look at the patterns, you know, in Bigfoot sightings. And uh, I began to bring them around to the notion that I'm very grounded and this is not at all, uh, you know, I'm not out there in the blue, that it's, it's, for me, something about trying to look at 
enigma, a mystery that maybe is solvable and maybe is not. I mean, one of the things about being a Fordian is we're not afraid to say, I don't know. And for mm-hmm. a lot of people, that surprises them. Uh, a lot of people want answers about suicide. They want answers about flying saucers. They want answers about Bigfoot. And for me, uh, the mystery certainly interests me is part of my passion, but also I do not get frustrated and upset because I don't have all the answers. This brings up a really important question, Lauren, that one of our readers, um, one of our listeners posted on our forums, and Gina and I have been talking about it offline. Given your background in, in psychology, I'd like to ask you a, a very important question, I think, um, we're, and it relates directly to these topics in that we're talking about the fact that if you have an interest in paranormal stuff, society in large really tends to ridicule and demean, yet the same society has no problem going to church every Sunday, praying to a God that they can't see, embracing a, a messiah that they've never met and somehow not only is this seen as being normal but in order to play in the political arena in this country you have to put forward your belief in god and your belief in many cases in fundamentalist christianity and that's not seen as being extreme but if someone talks about for example witnessing a ufo a metallic thing that happened right in front of them or if they talk about cryptozoology they're seen as being somehow mar- you know fringy and, and and they're ridiculed how does that work from a sociological point of view well i think psychologically and sociologically the way i look at it is that religion and faith gives people firm answers there's no question there there's they're given a dictum they're given a response in which they don't really need to think they are not asked to question it and by their faith they show that they follow that as opposed to the unexplained mysteries where you're walking into darkness you're walking into the unknown people don't like to not know answers people get very scared uh, and one of the reasons that you know horror movies and and popular psychological thrillers can be so popular uh, is is because people want to kind of have that in their fictional life but they don't really want to think that it's in the non-fiction life they can sort of grasp and hold and embrace actually religion because religion is the unknown but it's it's not the unknown if they are true believers and most people that that you're talking about whether they're the religious right or the conservative middle or the liberal left as far as religion they certainly believe that what they're being told is the is the facts and is the answer that they should follow and i think that that's the difference between and i don't like the word paranormal so as far as the unexplained it really is the difference between the psychology of human beings that always want to feel secure secure in their answers secure in knowing what tomorrow brings and as soon as somebody brings up well maybe there's this is more than coincidence maybe there's some unknown things going on out there then it, it shakes up that foundation of security that a lot of people feel that they can certainly get from religion also lauren wouldn't it also explain why some of the people who become popular in ufos and related studies are those who promise answers positive answers we know they're coming from zeta reticuli 
we know they're Palladians, whatever. Well, I think that large egos and firm answers certainly propel people into celebrity, uh, whether they're a nuts and bolts person or they're a, you know, a blonde-headed space, you know, brother type person. And it happens in cryptozoology as well. I mean, I think that a lot. Of, I make a lot of people angry because I just by the mere fact that I've been around for so long, it's not that I know so much in terms of the answers, but I certainly know a lot about a lot of the stories and a lot of the details. And that, as well as the media has just kept coming around, and I do have, I guess, a little bit of charisma. So so it certainly um, sometimes works in, against you because everybody thinks you've got such an enormous ego that you're, you know, you're not listening to them. But I listen to a lot of people, and I'm sure that somebody like Stan Freeman listens to people too. But uh, because he's got the answers, because he he thinks he knows about M12 or the nuts and bolts, bolts answers, people uh, tend to uh, be angry at him, but also listen to him. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. If you have a comment or a question, send your letters to news at thepowercast.com, news at thepowercast.com. Don't forget to visit our website, thepowercast.com. Check out our wild and woolly message boards. They get wilder and woollier, if that's a word, <laughs> by the moment. Our guest today is Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist, 40 in. And you can check out more of his stuff and some of his writings at laurencoleman.com and discover his books. David, you had a question. Could I oh, just sorry. mention my, the, the blog at CryptoMundo? Go ahead. You know, every day I'm writing one or two news items and commenting on them on CryptoMundo.com. CryptoMundo.com. Right. Okay. Can you tell us, just before we go on, some of the things you've been writing about in recent weeks? Well, uh, I think one of the big stories for the summer of 2006 was there. there's lots of Bigfoot reports from Pine Ridge uh, Indian Reservation in South Dakota, uh, in which police officers are actually seeing Bigfoot, capturing them on them on thermal imaging, and really having uh, off-the-media sort of interactions with them. In other words, uh, for instance, in Malaysia, there's been a lot of reports of uh, a Bigfoot-type creature over there, but that's been the rage of the media in Asia for six months now. Uh, and it's interesting to me, at least in my blog, to try to get these stories that aren't really out there in the AP and the Rutgers and different places like that. So uh, those kinds of stories, there's reports of black panthers, there's sea serpents being seen in the Gulf of Mexico, there's 
you know, things happening all the time, as well as new animals. And a new report uh, this this week, which we're talking about, we're late in the middle of the fall here, that there's a new site in Florida in which uh, ivory-billed woodpeckers are being seen. So uh, we try to do the, the mundane, supposedly, what I call the animals of discovery, as well as the cryptozoological pursuits that are occurring. Now, you mentioned thermal images of Bigfoot. Are these things that our listeners can find on the web? I'm always fascinated by any kind of photographic or visual evidence. Exactly, and those are some of the most popular uh, blogs that I'm writing are the ones that what we call mystery photographs, and I put those on CryptoMundo all the time. Uh, unfortunately, what's happening in Pine Ridge, because even the police department are really working on the edge of poverty, they're capturing these thermal images, but they don't have the camera equipment to then photographically capture them. So they're trying to buy the equipment. They're they're borrowing the equipment from their drug unit and using it in their police cars now because they're having so many sightings of these Bigfoot who are peeking in windows, who are coming to the level of the 11-foot-tall roof of these houses and bearing uh, dogs and, uh, you know, dancing around light poles and different kinds of interactions that uh, are pretty typical of a Bigfoot migrating through an area. Is, so is this a cyclical event? I mean, has this area seen a definable cycle of this kind of activity over time? Yeah, about three years ago they had uh, quite a few reports. At the beginning of the 90s they had reports, and it seems to be uh, one or two single males that are traveling through there. As you can well imagine, this area of you know, the Black Hills of uh, South Dakota, it's not exactly pristine Bigfoot territory. It's not a rainforest. There's not a, a lot of uh, wooded areas there, but there are enough so that we're seeing a little bit of activity, and then these uh, Bigfoot seem to go on. Hmm. All right, that gets to be more and more fascinating. Are these creatures doing anything that anyone would interpret as being harmful, or are they just curious? Well, you have a real division here in North America. A lot of the reports that we get from the West of these Bigfoot-type creatures tend to be uh, from a distance or individuals that are seen to be crossing a road or or different things like that. Whereas uh, if you get into Michigan, Missouri, Illinois, some of the eastern states where you have these sort of aberrant reports of one or two individual Bigfoot, they oftentimes can be very violent. Uh, there was a report from the 1960s in Michigan of a Bigfoot that went around and, and poked its arm in a car and would give uh, young young women black eyes. And another one in uh, many different areas where in the Midwest where you'd get reports of these Bigfoot actually killing dogs or killing goats and, and walking around. Uh, there was one from Wisconsin, one from Missouri, another from Michigan, which they were actually carrying the carcass around, and then they would be seen and the blood would be dripping on their fur. So I've always saw it as a, a real relationship here to population. And the more humans and the more dogs you have around, I think the infrequent Bigfoot contacts are much more aggressive out east versus almost a reflection of the mountain gorilla kind of syndrome out west where they're seen as gentle giants. Are they basically feeling threatened then? 
Oh, I think that dogs definitely threaten Bigfoot, and I think that dogs, some you know, in the woods, uh, some dogs get very scared and they they run away. But when they're being tied up near their house or they're in a yard, and then there's a Bigfoot in it, and they don't feel that there's much escape for the dog, the dog oftentimes attacks and uh, and gets killed by the Bigfoot. Now, in general, and we talked about this during your first appearance, maybe just to bring it back, the Bigfoot, this is some kind of pre-human or some kind of missing link or what? Well, I think those are all popular media terms. In general, you have many typical fossil candidates. There's a Gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus was a 10-foot-tall ape-like creature that may be related to the orangutans or the gorillas. It's hard to really pigeonhole them. We find their uh, their jaw bones, their mandibles in India and teeth in China, Vietnam, Asia. Uh, and then there's Paranthropus, which was a almost eight-foot-tall creature that was much more man-like, and there's reports of those uh, in the fossil record from Africa and Asia. So you have enough fossil candidates that we don't have to create some creature out of the blue. I think that the misnomer and missing link, of course, is that people think in terms of, you know, Australopithecine is followed by a, a creature that then evolved into Homo erectus and then it evolved into you know, Homo sapiens. It's not that clear cut. The, the fossil record is really like a woven rug, and these creatures could be side branches. They could be relatives. They could be. Uh, they're already in results evolutionary uh, primates. We know that because they're here with us. Uh, so the most exciting discovery, of course, is Homo forensis, little hobbits from uh, Indonesia, because we know that at the same time that humans existed, there were three foot tall uh, little people and uh, that's very exciting for anthropology and cryptozoology what does it really end up meaning for anthropology what it means is that anthropologists for 20 to 50 years have thought that you know human and this is somewhat the religion of anthropology so to speak <laughs> is that anthropologists felt that there was a single species hypothesis that there was only one person one kind of being that was at the top of this pyramid and that all other human-like creatures had died out. But what we're beginning to see is, you know, Bigfoot, uh, the hobbits, the Homo forensis, there's different things like that that evolved and stayed alive at the same time as modern man. And this is a very exciting concept because you know, within the last 10 years, we know, for instance, one million years ago, there were six species of hominids existing at the same time in Africa. And there's absolutely no reason that there's not enough uh, almost ecological niches in the earth right, on the earth right now for Bigfoot, for Yowies, for Orangay Pendex, some of these different creatures that are reported around the world to exist at the same time as human beings. We'll talk about Bigfoot civilizations. I want to know how smart these creatures are, and we'll ask Lauren Coleman that in a moment. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. Wow, 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 wow,
During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, a reminder, send your messages to news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com, and we'll try our best to answer important questions via email or even on the show. Visit our forums at theparacast.com for wild and woolly stuff. We're talking to Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist extraordinaire, and that's a new category I, I put him in. And you go to laurencoleman.com and you can learn more about the subject. So let's talk about about Bigfoot. Now, what kind of society do they have if we assume there's a society? How smart are these creatures? Do they have a language? Can they talk to each other? Well, first of all, we have to look at the word Bigfoot. Just as when I got involved and interested in this in the 1950s and 60s, the word that everybody used was a bondable snowman. You know, there was a sighting of a big hairy creature in California, and that was called an abondable snowman. Now and say to- that five times fast and you really got into trouble. Right. And now we have this unfortunate word Bigfoot that has become a generic term for any large hairy creature that's unknown, seen any place in the world. So to take your question apart, uh, if I look at the Amas, which are a creature that is upright, rather thin, uh, hairy, uh, reported in Mongolia and some other parts of Eastern Asia, they tend to seem to have culture, they may have fire. They may actually exchange different kinds of trading goods with human beings in that area. Are they actually Homo erectus or Neanderthals? Mm-hmm. And the Russians who have been studying them think they are. You look at them in a different way, at least I do, in a different way than I look at Bigfoot on the west coast of the United States, who don't seem to have language other than a very rudimentary uka uka or uh, you know, communicating between valleys, just like certain animals would, uh, with uh, calls and and howls and different things like that. There's no uh, exchange of information with other members of their bands. There doesn't seem to be any interplay between humans and uh, Bigfoot. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any culture there. There's no use of fire. There's no use of tools. And so you really have to look at, quote-unquote, Bigfoot in different ways in different parts of the world. So I think that there are the possibilities that there are some of these large, unknown human-like creatures that are covered with hair that may actually be Homo erectus, and they probably are more intelligent than uh, the Bigfoot Sasquatch of North America. The one caveat is that uh, the anthropologist Carlton Kuhn once said during a talk, he said, well, if the meek shall inherit the earth, maybe it's Bigfoot, because they already know enough to stay away from the smog of the city. So maybe they're smarter than us already. Well, along those lines, Lauren, I grew up in South America and Venezuela and actually got to visit the, the Amazon rainforest. What is your knowledge of any kind of type of being along these lines that would generate, that would be emanate out of that part of the world? I've never really read about these kinds of creatures being seen in the rainforest down there, given the incredible size of these forests and given the wild variety of life that is in these things. Wouldn't that be uh, an interesting environment for creatures like this to be able to survive? 
Oh, yes. There's, there's reports uh, out of South America and the Amazon, the Mato Grasso and other areas. In fact, Bernard Heuvelman's in his 1955 French book, uh, you know, On the Track of Unknown Creatures, talks about them as the green apes in, in or the apes in green hell. And uh, these creatures have been reported for really centuries from down there. Uh, they're hmm. supposedly so big that they're able to take some of the cattle and pull their tongues out. And so there's quite a few reports. The, the problem has been in recent years is that they got mixed up by a guy with the Natural History Museum in uh, Washington, D.C., David Oren, who's also down there. He's a zoologist, and he feels that these reports are of ground sloths and the survival of ground sloths, which uh, Hoyleman's also felt was probably going on, but further south in Patagonia. So... Hmm. Um, you, you have a lot of different creatures, possibly, and of course the reports of the giant anaconda, larger than they've ever found any, uh, reports of uh, El Tigre, which is a little bit different than the jaguar down there, much more of uh, different than the puma and the jaguar, a, a third large cat for South America. So there are reports coming out of South America of some very interesting cryptids. Well, I know that when people up here in, in, in the United States talk about, you know, how nasty carpenter ants are, I always talk about uh, the marabunta ants, which just looking at, I have a few of these things encased in lucite. They're probably, what, an inch? Maybe I have a couple that are an inch and a half long, these incredibly, monstrously large ants that when they start to march, across the forest, basically anything that's in their path is essentially decimated, down to bones. These things are amazing creatures, and as far as I know, there is no ant like this up in the northern part of, of America. There's just nothing like this. So when I describe these things to people, they're like, no, there can't be an ant that big. And I'll pull <laughs> my lucite embedded marabunta ants, and people are like, oh my god, what the hell is this? Um, there's so a wonderful Charlton Heston film about these ants where they just go in a carpet across the South American landscape yeah. and really decimate, you know, people, cattle, you know, all kinds of vegetation. I think the closest thing that people in the southern part of the United States think about are the fire ants. They right. certainly bite people and, uh, you know, hurt them, but they don't become a carpet of living hell. Yeah, marabunters are wild. Along these lines with strange creatures, Lauren, um, something that fell across my desktop in the last week were some interesting articles and, and even some pictures of these really strange-looking things called skyfish. Uh, I guess they're also known as rods. What do you know about these things? Are these real insects, or are these a figment of the imagination? I think they're more a figment of photographic uh, anomalies. From everything I've seen and the evidence I've been shown, there are so many different shapes, uh, so many different uh, sizes. Uh, they really almost belong in a subcategory of ufology, even though people have been trying hmm. to put this square peg into the round hole of cryptozoology for about 10 years now. But I've seen, I've seen the, that there's absolutely no evidence that there's anything real there and in, in fact uh, I've seen some rather good debunking 
photographic analyses showing that these are nothing more than in one or two insects in some frames that are you know manipulated into making them look bigger than they are faster mm-hmm. than they are and then the other ones can be fireflies or uh, pieces of light that go around so uh, it's a real hodgepodge and i i don't think there's much to rob what sort of what i suspected i i wanted to get your verification on that thanks well, well i mean you know I, i'm really open to still you know, if somebody comes to me and they shows me they show me good evidence, fine, but everything I've seen so far it's not something I'm interested in. Yeah. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. In the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So many myths out there, but before we discuss any of these myths and realities, let me tell everybody you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We invite you to visit our online wild and woolly message forums at theparacast.com. A comment or a question, suggestion for guests, or a question for one of our guests, you can email us, news at theparacast.com, news at theparacast.com. We have Lauren Coleman joining us, cryptozoologist, Fortian, and he can be found at laurencoleman.com that's laurencoleman.com which we've linked at our website and we're talking about the reality and the myths behind strange creatures so maybe in the next few moments you can talk about a few myths here what are things out there what stories are out there that are not true about these strange creatures but that people come to hear a lot about what's the myth and what is the reality I I think what often happens is a kernel of reality gets overblown into a sensational celebrity creature. And probably one of the biggest ones in the last uh, 11 years is chupacabras, because the chupacabra reports really started in 1995 in Puerto Rico of a creature that was about three and a half, four feet tall with hair on its body, but they were kind of spiky hair and maybe three claws, maybe three toes, connected, and chupacabras means goat sucker, and they were seen to be killing livestock, goats mostly, Uh, and then down in Puerto Rico, there are no cryptozoologists at that time, so ufologists were the primary uh, Hispanic ufologists, investigated them, and they immediately said, well, these have to be from UFOs. 
even right. though there was absolutely no evidence these were alien creatures or anything like that. Now, what became of those initial reports is that there's a, a show that's like Oprah um, among uh, the Latinos called uh, Christina, and some reports and some of these investigators went on that show, and within the next two years, every website across the country that had any connection to the Hispanic culture had some college students selling T-shirts and putting these very elaborate pictures of chupacabras on them. So what we found is in Jamaica Plain, Massachusetts, in Tucson, Arizona, in Miami, Florida, you had an explosion of people saying that they were finding footprints of chupacabra, that chickens were being killed by chupacabra. There was a person in Miami, and I went ahead and bought bought one of the plaster casts that he was selling of chupacabra and, and uh, nicely took it out of the box and saw that I had a great plaster cast of a dog. Um, so, And this happened over and over again, and I think that any of the reality that may have initially been there with the chupacabra has in some ways been so diluted by how chupacabra now is you know, in Brazil or they're in Argentina, that the, the Brazilian Air Force has captured a creature and is keeping it in some, you know, a government conspiracy cover-up. So it's just got way overblown. And I think that is an example for me. And we have different people like um, uh, Dr. Martin and uh, Scott Corliss who have dug back and found that there are reports of chupacabra-like things back, you know, 100 years, definitely back into the 70s. But but as far as what we're looking at is, is the way people see chupacabras right now, it's almost anything that kills livestock. Yeah. And in, in some ways, it's like the New Jersey Devil. The New Jersey Devil is one of those names that is more mythological now than real in the early days and the turn of the between the 18th and 1900s. You had reports of a creature that seemed to be somewhat between a black panther and and some other kind of killing creature, but then it got to be a, a horse that flew over a city, or a, a creature that had wings. You know, different things that really that were more connected to a devil with a forked tail and, and stuff like that that had nothing to do with the initial reports of a of an unknown animal. So it just seems like we're doomed, Lauren, to basically always fall into this really noxious cycle of what you said, where a little kernel of truth gets completely overblown to the point where it becomes self-satirical. I mean, we see this in the UFO field all the time. A little tiny kernel of potential truth gets blown out. Does this really mean that we're never going to get to the bottom of the truth of some of these things? What's your opinion about that? I think with cryptozoology, we have the unenviable position of searching for creatures that may be there and may not be there, but when we find that they are there, they're no longer part of cryptozoology. They immediately become part of zoology. So as soon as the giant panda was found, as soon as the mountain gorilla was found, these creatures are no longer 
part of cryptozoology, and they're they're instead uh, this mundane animal that everybody knows about, and they forget about the fact that before that the coelacanth was a fish that people would eat, the native peoples, but nobody believed, you know, that they were really there or cared, and that's what happens in cryptozoology. And the other part of it, of course, is uh, is the debunkers tend to work in conjunction with how society wants to get back to a point of equilibrium. So in other words, the media and debunkers and skeptics rush in and tell us that, oh, there was no Loch Ness monster picture, that that, in fact, was somebody had put some plastique on top of a model submarine in 1933, 34, and that that was, uh, you know, that's a deathbed confession. In other words, they create their own myth to really debunk and bring to some kind of rational thought that there there was no monster there. And people will accept that very quickly because, uh, as we talked about earlier, it scares them that there might be uh, questions out there or somebody can't tell them the why for something. Also, you see a situation here where if somebody does perpetrate some kind of hoax, it tarnishes everything. So if there's a fake Bigfoot photo or artifact, it doesn't matter if there was a real creature out there, the fact that there is a fake, it's enough to destroy for a lot of people the possibility of any reality behind it. Yeah, exactly. And that's happened with the Loch Ness photo, and it's happened with the Ray Wallace story on Bigfoot where he died uh, and then you know, found footprints that he'd used to fake some footprints in 1958, and so everybody thinks that all of the Bigfoot footprints are fake, as if this guy could go all over the country and do all of them. He was ever-present. He was using his teleportation device. I guess so, which is a word that Charles Ford invented. Teleportation, really? Yep, it was invented by Charles Ford, teleportation. I think Gene Roddenberry owes him some money then. <laughs> Owes oh, the estate anyway. By the way, are there any living descendants of Charles Fort who have made any effort to carry on what he's done? I know, of course, we have different organizations that study it, but what about the members of his family? No, I, I don't think that uh, he had children, um, and I think that he and his wife uh, ended the line, and so I have not heard about that. You know, there's there's his papers, there's different organizations, as you say, and, and different magazines that have tried to carry on his tradition. But, I mean, the other thing, which I, I forgot to mention earlier, is Charles Hort did not join his own organization. I mean, the Fortean Society, he said that I will not join any organization that's called Fortean. You know, he just, he was not a joiner. And so... Uh, it sounds like a Groucho yeah. Marx comment. I would never join yeah. a club that would have me as a member. Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's how it works. So where do we go from here? What things are you planning? What do you think we might be discovering over the next uh, few years or the potential to discover some more information about? Well, I, I still have a feeling that within the next 20 years, we're going to find another great ape, probably in Indonesia. I think that the, the ocean, as Charles Fort said, the sea is the best uh, field for data and that we're going to find some kind of large animals, some sea serpent-type creatures that are going to really shake up the world. I think the other direction is back into to ancient times where we're going to find some fossil finds uh, of some humanoids that are going to really shock anthropology in similar ways to how the hobbits have shocked. And then, of course, uh, we, there's lots of things that we just can't prepare for. I mean, nobody would really expect the ivory bill 
woodpecker to be discovered in the last two years, and that's really certainly sh- shaken zoology up. And I think we're going to find that even though there's a lot of extinctions, and I very much appreciate that people should be careful about habitat, there are probably a lot of other animals out there that are supposedly extinct that still can be rediscovered. For instance, like the uh, Tasmanian tiger or the thylacine. What but, books have you done in recent years, last couple of years, that you might point us to? Well, there's a field guide to uh, lake monsters and sea serpents. There's a field guide to uh, Bigfoot that uh, has been republished in 2006. Uh, my original book with uh, Jerome Clark, uh, The Unidentified and Creatures of the Outer Edge, was republished in 2006 by Anomalous Books. I'm very happy about that. Uh, my biography on Tom Slick came out again in 2002, and I'm working with a studio in Hollywood trying to uh, get that made into a movie, and so maybe in 10 years people will be interested in searching for the Yeti again, which is the whole basis mm. of that book. Well, I think we're going to do some more searching with you in the near future. Thank you very much, Lauren okay, Coleman, great. for joining us on the Paracast. A reminder that if you go to laurencoleman.com, you'll learn a lot more about what he has to offer. Thanks again for joining us on the PowerCast. Thanks, Great Lauren. Great to be here. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295, or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com, and they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I know that people listen to this show and they say, you know, if I was on the show, I would ask this question or I would say that. I think they should. I think they should ask their questions. I think they should give us their comments in their own voice, don't you? I agree. I think the best thing is for them to express themselves. I could read their letters and do a decent job. David could read their letters and do a decent job. But if we hear your voice, so you don't have to be a professional announcer or anything like that. Just yeah. the sincerity that will come through. Just a clean recording. It's not that hard. Yeah, turn on your little microphone. Use your built-in microphone on your laptop. Record a comment, a message, or a question to us, something you maybe would like us to ask an upcoming guest. 
and send it to us at the Paracast. That's right. Send it to news at theparacast.com. News at theparacast.com. Keep your message to, oh, about 30 seconds to about a minute and a half. And ideally, we'd like it as an MP3 file. The reason is this way we could read it by any sound application. We don't have to deal with conversions and messing up your voice. And also, make sure you turn up the encoding rate. We want you to sound clear and crisp and not be filled with static. Right. Send it to us at newsattheparacast.com, and if it's relevant, if it's interesting, or certainly if it's entertaining, we'll air it on the show. Well, folks, now that we've made the invitation for you to present your viewpoints, we've got one right now, and that's from Robert Collins. He's responding to some of the critical comments David made about his book, Exempt from Disclosure, and here is what Robert has to say. Hello, everybody. My name is Bob Collins, and I'm responding to uh, the show, that interview that was done with me on September 17th, uh, 2006, by Paracast, hosted by Jim uh, Steinberg, where Dave Bedney made a comment about the Exempt from Disclosure book at the end of that show, which I wasn't allowed to respond to. I'd like to try to answer that. Uh, he complained that he thought the book was structurally or uh, stylistically weak, and there might be a good reason for that. A lot of the sources mentioned in the book uh, are not open source, or you can't get them out of a library or over the Internet. They're my own intelligence sources. However, there is a lot of information in that book which is referenced. For instance, the Angleton chapter alone has 24 references. So I hope that answers Dave's complaints or misgivings about the book. And uh, everybody out there, have a great day. Thank you. You know, one of the things that makes the Paracast interesting, in fact, more interesting than some shows out there, I think, is the fact that we have people who aren't afraid to tell us what they think. And we have these message boards at theparacast.com, our online forums, which are called the Paracast Forums, where you could tell us what you have to say about a subject that's on your mind. Yeah, ask us uh, about the things we've talked about on the show. Or even suggest guests that you think that we should have on the show, and we'll try to get them on. That's right. As a matter of fact, some of the guests that we've had on the show, like Bob White, the fellow who had this strange UFO artifact in the wake of a UFO sighting. Mm-hmm. Where do you think we first read about him? In our own message forums, forums right? That's right. One of our listeners posted the photo. It looked interesting to me, so I rung up Bob White, got a copy of his book, and, and we had him on the show. That's how easy it is. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So please, if you have thoughts, comments, feedback, if you want to get into an online brawl, God knows we've had a couple of those. Oh, boy, have we had some online brawls. Well, come on the Paracast forums and uh, pitch your voice in, and we're happy to have you come and express yourself there. I think that would be a very constructive thing. And who knows, you may even learn something. And by the way, we do have polls all the time. We have reader polls on the forums. Do you believe in contactees? What do you think UFOs are? We have lots and lots of polls. So if you want to participate or create your own poll, you can do it yourself on our message boards, by the way. And obviously subject to our editing, but we leave most of them alone as long as you keep the language clean. You know? Yeah. Coming up next week on the PowerCast, we'll hear from Michael Mott, an expert on on subterranean mysteries, including the Shaver mystery, and our own David Biedney, who will talk about an incredible proof of survival encounter. All this next week on The Paracast. The Paracast, with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. 
Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 